everybody and welcome to episode 19 of Now We're Talking. I'm Rob Danish from the University of Waterloo and this is a podcast about communication skills. And the last couple of episodes we've been talking a bunch about sentences and I want to make a bit of a transition today. I feel kind of obligated to start talking about something that might be a little bit more interesting and is probably a lot more complicated. Um, I can't seem to, I've become, like many people, I suppose, addicted to CNN and watching the new president of the United States make a fool of himself um, over and over and over again, it seems. Uh, and I am keep um, being reminded of the reasons why he won the election and why uh, Hillary Clinton lost the election. And right now in my public speaking class, I'm sorry, I'm teaching a speech writing class. So in my speech writing class right now, we're talking about some of this and my students want to kind of craft a, a speech to be delivered if he should ever, if Donald Trump were to ever arrive in Canada and to, for a meeting with Justin Trudeau, like what they would want to say to him. Anyway, all this is kind of going on in the background and I felt some need to talk a little bit about why Trump won the election um, in terms of a communication problem. Um, and in order to talk about that, we need to start talking about narrative or storytelling. And narrative or storytelling is an essential, essential, essential skill for an effective communicator. People good at communication can tell stories. They can tell stories to large crowds. They can tell stories to small groups. They can tell stories to individual friends or partners. They're able to tell stories. And so in this episode, all I want to try and do is talk a little bit about what a story is, because there's oftentimes a lot of confusion about that, and then why story matters so much, uh, what work it's able to do communicatively that other forms, other larger forms of discourse are not able to do. So when I teach speech writing, we spend a lot of time on word choice, on sentences, uh, we spend time on paragraphs, and we haven't really talked about a paragraph in this podcast yet, but we spend time on pod on paragraphs as well. Uh, but we also spend time on what I call a whole piece of discourse. And a whole piece of discourse is a larger, more complicated thing that hangs together and is made up of a bunch of sentences, connected sentences and paragraphs and words. Um, so when I introduce the notion of a story, I tell my students that a story is a whole piece of discourse. It's a larger unit, discursive unit in which the sentences that you've chosen are all connected toward some end. So in this kind of episode, I guess we're making a transition away from talking about sentences. It's, it's simple to talking about whole pieces of discourse and narrative or story as an example of a whole piece of discourse. Um, that might be important uh, to remember a little later, later on. Okay, so the big question is, what is a story? Um, what constitutes a story? Well, um, first I want to talk about what's not a story. So here is not a story. This morning I got up around 7 o'clock. I um, took a shower. I made some breakfast. Um, I made my kids lunch. And then my kids and I walked to school. 
and I dropped them off. We brought the dog and the dog and I walked, walked home. Then I sat down and I answered some email and now I'm making this episode of my, of my podcast. That is not a story. It's a recounting of a series of events that are loosely connected, but it doesn't constitute a story yet. Why not? What is it missing? Well, a story is comprised of, and this is very important, but three parts, at least three parts. Number one, a story has some characters. So the little thing that I just told, I could be a character, my kids could be a character, my dog could be a character. Okay, it's got characters. Number two, it's got a scene. There's some sort of context or scene within which the characters are acting. In this case, the scene is Toronto, a normal Monday morning, uh, school day, etc. The third component that all good stories have or all stories must have is that it has to have a challenge, a choice, or a conflict. What I just told you did not have any one of those, so it did not qualify as a story. The challenge, choice, or conflict drives the plot, and the plot is the unfolding of a series of events in a scene with some characters. But the challenge or the choice has to be present, or the conflict has to be present, to drive the, the unfolding of the plot. That challenge or choice does uh, a number of really, really important things, um, which we'll talk about in, in a few minutes. Um, but l let me start by explaining what a challenge or choice is, maybe. Um, my kids went through a big phase where they were really invested in Lord of the Rings. And uh, we watched the movies, you know, we read the books. And those are really great movies. Um, because at the core of the film, our series are, is a challenge. I, I mean, the challenge is how to destroy the ring. And the ring always creates a series of choices for the characters that encounter the ring. Up to the very, very last scene, you don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, Frodo goes to destroy the ring and then he can't. He's got this choice. Does he destroy the ring or does he keep the ring and become a powerful person? And at the same time, there is this challenge and this tension between this other character that's been following him around and leading him to the, the mountain, all to take the ring back himself. Um, so there's lots going on and there's lots of tension or conflict in nearly every scene of that whole trilogy. And those conflicts drive the unfolding of the narrative. Those conflicts also do the work of inviting people into the story by making them want to hear more. You want to know the resolution of the conflict. You want to know the resolution of the choice. You know, you want to know what the character chooses at the end. So they do some some work of pulling the audience in. And here's the key a key distinction that I try and make sure that my students understand. And it's going to take a couple of episodes of this podcast to kind of fully unpack this, but. Later on in the semester when I teach speech writing, we talk about a whole piece of discourse that I call an analytical claim. And an analytical claim is a kind of argument to get someone to believe something. Story works as the counterpoint to analytical claims because stories pull audiences in closer. They grab an audience or they grab a listener and pull them closer. And sometimes if they're really good, they hold them close. Um, so 
and here's a, a story about story, but uh, when I was a l- little kid, I saw Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back for the first time. I saw Empire Strikes Back in the theater, but Star Wars I saw on uh, video, VHS. And when I saw it on video, uh, I couldn't even sit on the couch. I had to sit closer to the TV. So I ended up sitting on the coffee table, on the edge of the coffee table, watching the TV as close as I could get to it. Why? Because the narrative was somehow pulling me in, it was pulling me closer. Um, by pulling me in or pulling me closer, uh, the narrative is able to do a kind of work that a claim or an analytical claim or an analytical argument can't do. Arguments are what are called push tactics of persuasion. They try and push a position on an audience to get them to accept or submit to the veracity or validity of the proposition being advanced. Stories are pull tactics of persuasion. They draw an audience in and they hopefully get the audience to identify either with a challenge, choice, tension, or character inside the story. It makes the, the, the story, make, a good story at least, makes the audience feel close to something that's happening inside the story. Um, by, by pulling, grabbing, and holding us closer, stories are also able to engage our emotions and our values. They don't rely on facts or data or justification. They engage emotions and values. They have memorable images. Uh, they intrigue. Sometimes they, they um, ring true instead of being true factually. Um, by ring true, I mean they have a kind of resonance that makes sense um, and that we want to nod our head in agreement with but that might not be factually true or factually accurate or precise. Um, so narrative, the ability to, to tell a compelling narrative that pulls, grabs, and holds an audience, that gets an audience to identify with either the characters or the challenges or choices or tensions in the, in the, in the, move, in the narrative, that taps into emotions and values, that has memorable images, that rings true, that connects and intrigues, those abilities, the ability to to weave together a whole piece of discourse with those intentional ends are what I consider a leadership art. It is, you know, being able to craft an effective narrative that does that work is a leadership art. It's a leadership art because narrative, more more than analytical argument, is the way we translate values into actions. It's the way we engage a heart and the hands, not just a head. So it's um, it's important if, if you want people to do or to believe or to act in some way, it's necessary for them to, to feel affectively pulled into a kind of narrative um, when narrative is practiced as a leadership art in such a way, what it does for us is it gives us a kind of map of the world. It orients us to our world in a certain way such that we start to look for um, things that make sense in relationship to that narrative. Um, many people have argued that we interpret the world in two ways, either as narrative or as analysis. Uh, and What that means is that normally we develop our understanding of who we really are, of where we're going, and of why we're going there 
through stories. So a story is able to articulate how we feel about things better than what we think about them. That means that the truth of the story is is in how it moves us. Uh, There's a psychologist named Jerome Bruner who's argued that narrative engages us because it teaches us how to cope with uncertainty, especially with respect to other people. So in symbols and rituals and celebrations, we kind of enact these shared stories and it helps us, it helps explain why we should act or why we believe the things that we believe. Analysis, on the other hand, and that's a different kind of whole piece of discourse, applies the rules of critical reason and evidence to understanding data in the world. Analysis articulates what we think about things better than how we feel about them. And the truth of analysis rests on the extent to which the data confirms or falsifies a hypothesis. Um, And perhaps sometimes it, it, it rests on our acceptance of the authority of the person involved in the use of critical reason. Analysis is really most persuasive when it helps us achieve the outcomes we want. Um, And in organizations, we often do analytical work through deliberation, through meetings, and it can really help us answer the question of how we want to act, you know, how we're to, to develop a strategy. But it doesn't do as good a job of explaining why we ought to do the things that, or why we want to do the things that we want to do. Narrative is is better at that. Um, now, if you want to know why, um, we're also talking about motivation, and motivation is the kind of thing that inspires us to action. So, if you think about the word emotion, it shares a root word with the word motor to move. So, we map the world conceptually by noticing patterns, contrasts, and commonalities, but we also map the world affectively by making distinctions between good and bad. And good and bad is kind of communicated through our emotional experience of the level that events, people, and things hold for us. Um, Now, how we feel about something influences what we think and what we do about it. And there's a whole other, you know, I can spend a whole uh, episode on that, but uh, if you've read Antonio Damasio's Descartes' Error, you know that uh, reasoning doesn't happen without emotions. Emo- like all reasoning is emotionally biased. Our, our emotional center of the brain processes information for us in such a way that it will bias reasoning. So um, here's what we know. Okay, we know that you know motivation and action have to do with emotions. Uh, we know that emotions bias reasoning. We know that narrative taps into emotion and value and tells us why to do the things that we want to do. So narrative is an essential leadership part. Now, I should probably have already said enough for if you're listening out there, and it doesn't matter if you're a Trump supporter or a Hillary Clinton supporter or a right-wing, left-wing, whatever, that doesn't really matter. I should have told you enough now to recognize the pattern in why Donald Trump was effectively able to win the presidential not uh, the, the presidency and why he continues to govern in the way that he continues to govern um, despite mounting evidence of the ineffectiveness of his choices and his policies and his directives um, so during the campaign during the the clinton uh, trump campaign it was absolutely unequivocally clear that donald trump had a narrative the narrative was largely xenophobic um, or 
use any one of a number of names for it, racist, xenophobic, um, nativist, whatever you want. The narrative was that, um, first of all, it's captured by the slogan, make America great again. That narrative suggests that America at one time in the past was a great place and now is a crappy place. And in the inaugural speech, you saw this too. It's littered with tombstones, closed factories. There's violence everywhere, crime everywhere. It's a horrible, horrible place. It was great once, now it's horrible. Why did, why, what happened? That it moved from being great once to horrible now? Well, essentially the argument is that Mexicans and um, uh, Muslims came to the country and ruined everything. So on the one hand, there's Islamic terrorism. On the other hand, there's immigration from Mexico. Both of these things, uh, and the third thing is that trade, um, we shipped jobs overseas to people that were not white, essentially. So the good things left America and bad things came into America, essentially. So there's this narrative that's in place. And I often ask anybody, my students, my colleagues in academia, um, anybody that I consider to be a thoughtful and intelligent person, I ask them, you know, what was Hillary Clinton's narrative in that campaign? And I still don't really know. I, I paid enough attention to it. I didn't. I wasn't watching CNN every day. I didn't see every one of her campaign stops. But I honestly don't know what her narrative was, if she had any sort of story at all. Barack Obama had a narrative in both. Um, uh, if you read his early speeches, especially in the campaign speeches, he has a clear narrative. It's a progressive and liberal narrative, but it's clear. Um, Hillary Clinton, as far as I can tell, didn't even bother to construct or craft an effective public narrative that would tell people why they needed to, to vote for her or make them feel affectively something. In any kind of election, uh, in an American election like that, if it's the existence of a narrative versus no narrative, odds are the narrative will win. <laughs> um, but I mean, that's kind of beside the point. The, the deeper point is that this works to help explain Trump's followers and what I would consider Trump apologists. Uh, he's already a train wreck of a president. To me, that's an objectively, analytically provable fact. Um, he's destroying the Constitution. He appears to be an idiot. I mean, he doesn't actually know anything about anything that he's talking about. He makes up facts. He has, sends his, his uh, press secretary out there to make up facts. He's obsessively narcissistic. Um, all of that's crazy. Yet there's millions of people that are still apologizing for Trump and suggesting... Uh, that he's doing a good job, even. Uh, well, it doesn't help to get into an analytical argument with such people, with Trump apologists, yet that keeps recurring on the news over and over and over again. And the reason it doesn't help much is because of a kind of selective bias that narrative causes. So once the narrative is in place and that narrative has been established, um, that we should fear Islamic, but we, we should fear Muslims, period, and Mexicans uh, because they've ruined our country. Once that narrative is firmly in place, people will buy it, will reason in all sorts of biased ways. They'll look for evidence that confirms the, the emotional truth, the ring truedness of a particular claim. Um, so, if a leader gets up there and says, look, America is a very dangerous place. There's crime everywhere. It's terrible. You should be scared. And there's something about that that rings true, that you feel a kind of nervousness or anxiety or tension. And this person has, has named it and given you a story to explain that. Then 
you're going to see evidence to confirm where whatever that person says is the cause of that anxiety or that fear. Um, the truth, the, the truthfulness of the narrative isn't in its factual accuracy or its validity. It's in its ability to affectively confirm or make people feel or pull them in to a narrative and hold them in that narrative by making them feel some sort of emotions. And what we know in the art of leadership is that um, stories can translate values into emotions that lead to action. That's what story does. Story translates a value into an emotion to lead to, to result in action. And that's what we're seeing right now with Donald Trump. Um, and everyone wants to object to validity analytically to the validity of, of and the factual accuracy of his claims. But until the left, until the Democratic Party or CNN or um, I, I don't know if the news is actually the opposition party um, or the Democratic Party is the opposition party, until the opposition party, whoever that is, has a counter narrative, has a narrative that can pull people in and affectively um, tap into values through emotions to lead to action, then the Trump will continue to, to govern. It's not going to matter that he's factually inaccurate or doesn't seem to know what he's talking about. The narrative has enough ring trueness to it, and it's pulled and grabbed and held enough people in it that it will continue to do the work of mapping or orienting the world for certain people. So uh, we're already kind of pretty far into this episode. We need to talk a little bit about how to effectively craft a narrative that pulls, grabs, and holds people in. How to um, to motivate action through emotions and through values. Um, but I think we'll we can start that in the in the next episode next week. Uh, for now, at least, it should be clear that narrative is, storytelling is a central component of effective communication. Stories have characters, scenes, but they also have challenges, choices, or conflicts that drive, that drive the narrative, that drive the plot of the narrative. And it works through pulling, grabbing, and holding an audience in through identification, through emotions and values, and through ringing true, not through being factually accurate. That's how story works. Okay, that's it for this week. I hope everyone has a great week, and I hope you to that you'll check in again next week when we'll continue our conversation about narrative. Thanks.